Eclectic Collection. Today is episode 32, Musical Connections. So I'm obviously obsessed with music because, you know, I made kind of a career out of that for fun. And um, uh, if anybody can uh, spew off 80s facts like me that, uh, you know, spend too much time watching MTV and, and really appreciate uh, music and, and the artists and what year they made whatever song. I'm just into that kind of stuff. And a lot of people are. Um, we all know that uh, there are many uh, a connection between different artists and different things. And, you know, who was on the backtrack to this or who knew who that produced such and such. And a lot of it is who you know. But this has always um, stuck in my head to the point where I started to really dig around a bit because I I noticed it. But I was younger, and then I got thinking about it one day, and I thought, you know, this can't just be coincidence. And it turns out it wasn't. So um, Dick Clark, love Dick Clark. Uh, he, Wolfman Jack, Casey Kasem, in my opinion, are the DJs, if you will, that kind of started everything in DJ world. Of course, we would go on to, you know, have John DeBella, Pierre Robert, and all these great Philly DJs, and, you know, Barsky, and now we have Preston and Steve and everybody that's um, been around, and every city has their own. But as far as I'll say national brand names, Everybody knew Casey Kasem, uh, everybody knew Dick Clark, everybody knew Wolfman Jack. And sadly, um, I believe they're all gone now. But Dick Clark, a uh, special place in my heart for him because he was really a Philly staple icon for the American Bandstand. And it turns out that the show, um, American Bandstand, was from 1952 to 1989. I remember it as a kid in the 80s watching it late 72 in like 11 o'clock on Saturday morning. It was like Saturday morning cartoons were a thing. And at 11 o'clock when the music went on, I knew, because that was all like up to pre-MTV, um, at least until 1981, that that was when the music came on. And then after that, I knew it was time to go get changed and dad and I were going to go to the park and then come back and have lunch. That was like our, <laughs> our Saturday morning routine. Get up, breakfast, Saturday morning cartoons for a few hours, 11 o'clock, American Bandstand, and then 12 o'clock it ended. And yeah, I was really lucky to have grown up seeing live acts uh, at the time, well, on TV, obviously, but like the first uh, uh, premiere in a lot of situations where much like the... the um, Ed Sullivan show of the 60s, which I wasn't alive for and caught reruns of. This was sort of my Ed Sullivan in the sense that Dick Clark would bring on new people and I got to see the Jackson 5 and Madonna and, you know, all these like new uh, people that were coming up and coming in, in the music industry. So for me, it was a treat. I loved the show. Now, uh, the show started in Philadelphia and then sadly it moved to L.A., I would imagine just for, you know, uh, logistical purposes if I had to guess but it moved in 64 so it really didn't hang out in Philly more than 12 years so what I was watching was um, obviously you know being filmed in, in LA but uh, it didn't matter because in my head it was still a, a Philly staple and I love the show now coincidentally um, I just kind of in my brain I was thinking hmm Barry Manilow did a song called Bandstand Boogie that I kind of grew up with and it's vintage 75. And I would hear it a lot. And my sister was obsessed with Barry Manilow, so therefore, of course, I grew up with Barry Manilow. And I thought, oh, that's pretty pretty coincidental. So often on the show, I would hear Bandstand Boogie, which I thought, hmm, Barry Manilow, he's a musician. Interesting. Because as a kid, um, I kind of vaguely knew him from I'm Vintage 74, so I was little, I kind of knew he did jingles and wrote commercials. 
And two of his famous commercials were the State Farm, you know, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, um, which is still in use, and the Band-Aid brand, because Band-Aid stuck on me, and that was a big commercial in the 70s. And um, State Farm's still going. Uh, I haven't seen the Band-Aid one in a while, but he must have gotten kind of his start there. So I knew the, the jingles for the commercials, and then I knew Bandstand Boogie. And he was, you know, went on to be a singer-songwriter, obviously with a prolific catalog and, and great career, but... I thought, huh, that's interesting. And then I kept hearing it, and uh, I sort of dismissed it. But it turns out that, like, in my... Obviously, I didn't watch it in the 50s, but as it was going on, it turned out that it became the theme of the show. So in my head, I got to thinking, there's got to be some connection between Dick Clark and Barry Manilow. And if for nothing else, because Bandstand was sort of my, I'll say, secondary thought, the other thing that was in my head... Dick Clark was known for a lot of stuff, but um, I can remember him, and I don't know what year it was. Uh, It was in the 80s at some point. I want to say it was probably like circa 86, 7, 8. It was somewhere around there. I can remember my family was watching, it was a Sunday night, and they were watching some ridiculous show on TV that I wanted no part of. And that was back when everybody actually sat in the the den and watched TV together and, and didn't, you know, fight for the remote and freak out. Um, and I was like, Ugh, I don't want to watch this. And I remember going into my mom and dad's bedroom to seek out the extra television at the time. And although a smaller set, I remember just flicking channels to watch anything but whatever terrible thing they were watching. I'm not a big Western fan. I think they were watching a Western. It was old. And I was flicking channels. And I remember coming upon, I don't even know what network did it. It was probably ABC because ABC worked a lot with Dick Clark. But it was Dick Clark's 33 and a third birthday. Now, in reality, I don't know what that translated to in real years. Looking back, it was probably, I would think, like his 60th because somewhere around there, 50 or 60, I don't know in truth. But 33 and a third is the RPMs, the revolutions per minute on a large album, on a classic LP. And 45s are the little ones. Back in the day, like back in the 30s and 40s, they also had 60s, by the way. And they were heavier, but press vinyl, 33 and a third. And I remember like all these artists doing a quick clip saying, happy 33 and a third, Dick Clark, you know, we're all happy to be here. And Tears for Fears happened to come on. And uh, that's why I said it had to be like 85, 86, 87, because they didn't even do um, everybody wants to rule the world or shout until like 86 or so. So I think it was like 86, 87. I remember the monkeys coming on and making a birthday wish and a lot of people, like all sorts of artists. But every so often, despite there being tons of artists that would either sing a clip, play a clip, wish wish Dick happy birthday, every couple commercials, Barry Manilow would appear. And I thought, wow, okay. And, and that was, you know, tucked in my data banks. So then I got to thinking, that was just a cool show. Um, later, in Dick Clarkson Year's Rock and Eve, which I grew up watching because, again, I'm vintage 74, the show started in 1971 on New Year's Eve, again on ABC, and still runs with the title Dick Clark's New Year's Rock and Eve, even though he passed, which was very sad because um, although Ryan Seacrest has taken it over, and I think they call it Dick Clark's New Year's Rock and Eve with Ryan Seacrest, um, he it, it's, it's a shame. Dick suffered a stroke in 04. And of all people, and of all horrible irony, to have a voice issue, it messed with his speech. And he tried so hard to make the appearance. He looked better. He got in his tux and he looked okay. 
But unfortunately, because strokes tend to affect a side of your body and a side of your face, he had a really tough time speaking. And he did try, and they kept him on minimally, and it was really a respect thing that they gave him the slot. I think the first year back, he probably started a little too soon. I don't know that he would ever be able to make um, you know, good like he did before on on his appearances. But uh, he and his very lovely wife of many years was with him, and, and he did a... Uh, a little clip and, and you could tell he was struggling, but in subsequent years, cause he didn't pass until 2012, he did make a cameo and he kind of just waved and, you know, said happy new year. And that was that. And they sort of truncated his, his, uh, having to speak, but, um, he did make a, a cameo to the end, but that was just a, a program that I look forward to. It was not New Year's Eve without the Clark. So you had that last half hour, it goes on for a while. The news would typically run from 11, 11.30. It would start at 11.30 and it would run all night. And they would have, you know, via satellite from Disney and via satellite from parts of the world and via satellite, like as the different time zones would go off, you know, in the West Coast. And you would see all these different things. And there was usually a, a military component. And then they always had a lot of artists and whoever the new upcoming artist was would perform. And it was always Dick Clark's New Year's Rock and Eve. And he put it together and it was obviously in New York and they would watch back in the day, the Apple, now the ball, you know, drop and everybody was a part of it. And it would show you all the people and notoriously somebody would get engaged or there'd be a big stage in the middle of New York and someone would perform. But again, no matter what, they would have a, hey, it's whatever year, yippee, the countdown. Everyone would clap. Somebody would break into New York, New York and same old anxiety or, you know, anxiety, old anxiety, not same old anxiety, that's Dan Fogelberg. But, you know, they'd play it, hug, kiss, whatever. They'd show the crowd for like a minute or two until they sung, sang the song. And then quick clip cut to Barry Manilow singing, typically a block away, maybe pre-recorded in a studio, whatever, sitting at a piano, singing. It's just another New Year's Eve, which he had written and ironically got used every year by Dick Clark. Now, here's the kick. Um, the song gets used, but the song wasn't written until 1977. <laughs> so even though the show starts in 71, when he writes the show in 77, which at that time he was probably the new artist guest with it, even though he had already adopted Bandstand in 75, they obviously already had some sort of relationship to be able to work together. And then he gets like that clip every year. So you would see Barry Manilow pre-recorded or live or whatever singing, you know, uh, the New Year's Eve song, uh, it's just another New Year's Eve, which I, you know, I like, it's a good song. So there's some sort of connection there, right? And I kept thinking, that's eh, interesting. And then it hit me, speaking of crazy things to watch on a Sunday night with your family on TV, back in the day, um, 78, he wrote a song called Copacabana wildly successful and you know again this is just my perspective as a dj and a music enthusiast 1978 was a fantastic year now i was four okay i'm not gonna lie <laughs> but there was an energy and an electric surrounding 1978 people might argue that 76 because of bicentennial and not that there wasn't a lot going on then and yes i remember because i'm weird but in 78 there was just a musical explosion and it was probably the last year that everybody sort of got along musically. Disco was happening, but you had a lot of rock happening. You started to see some changes in rock. Um, you know, you kind of had some alternative uh, things happening, like Grandmaster Flash starts to come out with grassroots rap ideas. You've got some major players like the Eagles and Aerosmith and, and rock, like kind of working towards 
you know, uh, keeping a stable sound, if you will. You start to see the beginnings of, of a little bit of heavy metal. You got disco in full swing. And you got a lot of singer-songwriters out there. You know, 78, you've got, like, things as wildly eclectic. Hey, look at that. <laughs> see what I did there. Um, you've got things as wildly eclectic as Chuck Mangione's Feels So Good, which is totally instrumental in 78, December release, which I know you know from Doctor Strange because of that clip where they try to stump him and they say 79, but no, it was December 78 release. Go watch the clip from Doctor Strange if you want to hear about that. But um, true, okay, who also got utilized in the Rocky theme songs, right? So you've got Gonna Fly Now, which he did. So now you got like a pure musician, trumpeteer, charting in the same year that you have um, Charlie Daniels' band, Devil Went Down to Georgia, okay, which is totally country, but hits mainstream rock. In the same year, you have crazy amounts of of disco, and you get a song like Copacabana. And you know what? It all worked, and everybody was cool with it. I just feel like there was an electricity around 1978 that is has not really been replicated again. And uh, although we had some great, like, 86 was a great year for music, in the 80s, you know, we had a lot of one-hit wonders and things that kind of came together. And that's where you see that Crossroads uh, hit where, you know, you got it run DMC and the crossover with um, Aerosmith. And, like, rap sort of explodes onto the mainstream scene out of the underground new MTV raps idea with Rock's help. So it's kind of interesting because all that time Aerosmith was in the game. But um, you just see these little, like, musical pops every now and again. And just like 81's on the board because MTV was born, 78 was a big year 79 you saw people going after that crazy dj in ohio tried to blow up disco and things like that like you saw a lot of negativity you didn't see that in 78 so 78 was a big musical year where a lot of things just worked that you wouldn't normally have seen and they were all working together which was cool so it was completely normal to go to a party and hear copacabana charlie daniels band and you know chuck mangione in the same in the same night anyway i digress so um my tangents have tangents. So Copacabana, very cool. And, you know, we, no accident that my sister's first dog was Mandy, okay? Do you see a connection? Because obviously she liked Barry Manilow. And yes, maybe that song really is about a dog. But um, so Mandy, our, our, our first big uh, big doggy, our first uh, uh, Sheltie Collie mix. She's adorable. And um, I would tease the dog. And instead of saying her name was Lola, she was a showgirl, like her name was Mandy. She had a lot of fur. Anyway, so um, if you follow the lyrics of the song, it's kind of this deal where there's this dancer and she's in love with the guy and he's the bartender. And they're, you know, kind of like a blue collar couple. Life is good and everything's peachy. And then, you know, Rico comes in and he wore a diamond and you get the vibe that he's a nefarious man and he probably is into unscrupulous things and, you know, Back then, they just didn't say it, but, you know, he was a not nice guy, and then he calls her over, and he starts to get a little handsy, and Tony's like, yo, not cool, and then there's a big fight, and of course, spoiler alert, they draw a gun or a knife or something, I think it's supposed to be a gun, and uh, Tony is trying to beat up Rico, and Rico's trying to beat up Tony, and in the struggle, the gun goes off, Tony gets shot, and she lost her love. Okay, so now she's, like, strung out at the bar years later, drunk and talking about how you know, the, uh, she lost her love years ago with the Copacabana. Well, it, it's, it's, it's an actual story. And let's bring Meatloaf into this because, you know, hey, rock operas, you don't get better than that, where you're telling a story, just like Bohemian Rhapsody, you're telling a story that was very popular 
at the time. You've seen it again since, but not as much or as prolifically as with artists like Queen and, and you know, Freddie Mercury's ability and, and Meatloaf and, uh, and Barry Memlo in this case. And what's funny is in 1985, they decided, and again, I think it was ABC, but I don't know, to make a miniseries about the Copacabana, simply called the Copacabana. And I remember my sister forcing us to watch it. <laughs> and Barry Manilow played Tony Starr, who was the bartender, you know, humble man. Um, Annette O'Toole played Lola. And Rico was Joe Bologna. Um, and I truthfully uh, don't remember much about it. I remember watching it. And, you know, the miniseries in, in the 80s was the answer to Netflix now. Because that's pretty much all we did was fall in love with miniseries. And people were like, oh, the North and the South is on. Are you going to watch? And then you'd tune in several months later or Twin Peaks. And people were like, oh, my God, miniseries. And you'd have just that, a miniseries. For three or four nights um, on a channel, you would get a consistent show. And then they would you know, cliffhanger you. And then you'd come back several months later for the second part. And uh, they did that a lot in the 80s, which honestly gave way to a lot of things like binge-watching Hulu and Netflix because we didn't want to wait those many months. And if you were lucky enough to have a VCR and record stuff, that's great. But all you could do is rewatch what you already saw. So now we're so impatient that we buy services so that we can have them immediately and even pay upcharges and services to get them the next day. Um, so that was a miniseries that was very popular. And here's the fun fact. After all that, the executive producer was Dick Clark on that show. So you know, I'm not making this up, there's actual connections there. So I just found that interesting because that's why I said it had to be ABC because obviously Dick Clark had a relationship with ABC and clearly Barry Manilow and Dick Clark had a very good working relationship for years between the American Bandstand and turning it into the theme with just another New Year's Eve and turning it into his own spot every year with his own birthday that they felt the need to call Barry Manilow and have many, many a spot there for him to say happy birthday, sing to him. And then, of course, him being the executive producer, uh, you know, Dick Clark for um, Barry Manilow on the Copacabana miniseries, which was wildly popular at the time. So it's just one of those cool things. I don't know that you think about it too much. Um, again, Dick Clark really more in the DJ producing and, and supportive role for artists, but a lot of people would not have gotten their career, their start or anything if it wasn't for Dick Clark. And much like uh, a modern day, although since deceased, um, uh, you know, Ed Sullivan situation, um, he was able to catapult careers because if Dick Clark wanted to join the show or invited you on, everybody went to bandstand. And uh, Barry Manilow was, uh, you know, is still touring and is a great singer-songwriter. So um, I just think that it's it's funny that they had a lot uh, behind the scenes and, and nobody necessarily knew it. And sometimes you'd be surprised to find out who produced this or sang on that or, or whatever. So if you like what you heard today, check us out at eclecticcollectionpodcast.com or listen to us on your preferred platform. I'm Terry Tanaglia. Thanks for listening. <laughs>